If you've been here the last couple weeks, you know we're in this series of messages talking about our identity in Christ. Let me tell you my identity, because some of you may not know me, and I don't get to talk to you like this all that often. I'm Pastor Joe Brownlee. I am the worship arts director here at New Life. It's my privilege to talk to you today. I'm real excited about it. So two weeks ago, you might remember that Pastor Jay talked to us about how we're sons and daughters of the King. Remember that? See what, see what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Then last week, Pastor Brian talked to us about our role as kingdom priests. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Today we're going to talk about two more identities we have as followers of Christ. So you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder to get ready, fire up your Bible app, or if you're old school, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20, and if you want, the passage is also on your study guide. You know, a lot of times on Saturday night, if I'm here for celebration, or if I'm just home, or what have you, I like to watch the reruns of Star Trek. You guys remember Star Trek? I once had someone say to me, everything I learned about ministry, I learned from Star Trek. I'm like, so last night I'm watching Star Trek, and the, the episode is one you might remember if you remember the series. The Enterprise is caught in the gravity well of a black star. They pull out. It throws them back in time to the 1960s where they're at Earth, and the Air Force spots them. And, and so the whole rest of the episode is spent trying to erase the fact that they'd ever been there. And I'm thinking, they're trying to cover up their identity. <laughs> and I guess I've been listening to this series too long or something. So, But that's how I think. Anyway, let me pray for us, and we'll get going. God, this morning, we just come to you and ask you today, work in our hearts. Speak to every heart that's here. God, let us be open to it. Give us spirit ears to hear what you say. And then, God, let us do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I said, we're in Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, meaning Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are sit one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said, well, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left or my right is not to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among us must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came to be served, and not to serve, but, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." The desire for significance, it is deep within us. But that desire can get out of control, and I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. He tells us that as his followers, we have to be servants. Now, the sons of Zebedee here that are mentioned are James and John. They were two of the disciples, they were brothers, and they're among Jesus' closest friends. The Bible tells us that Jesus gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, we don't know exactly why, but you might guess that they were kind of bold and brash, right? And we kind of see that here. Now, as I read this, getting ready for this, I, I wondered, 
was this request really from their mother? Or did she know what they really wanted and she was just trying to help them out? I think this request came through Mrs. Zebedee, but originated from James and John based on two different things. First, notice Jesus didn't respond to the mother, but he responds to James and John directly. What does he say? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And the parallel passage in Mark 10 says that James and John wanted Jesus to do for them whatever they asked. Second reason I believe that it came from James and John is a similar incident in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. It says this, And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And aside, did he really need to ask him? I think he knew. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. So you see the pattern here? Jesus is confronted with these two different situations. They're similar and he has the same response. The upside down nature of his kingdom versus our human experience. Don't be first, be last. Now James and John, they wanted those places of privilege, right? And sitting alongside Jesus in the kingdom, those places have a high price tag. And Jesus said that. And he asked them, are you really up to that? And they're saying, yeah, we are. But be careful what you ask for. Now, I noticed that Jesus didn't rebuke them. There are plenty of times if you read the Gospels, the disciples say something, and he's like, you know, he gets after them because they said something he didn't like. But he didn't rebuke him here. And he even acknowledged they would pay a dear price to be his followers. Acts 12 tells us that James was the first of the disciples to be martyred. He was executed by sword at the order of Herod. Now, tradition has it that John survived two attempts on his life, both miraculously. But then ultimately he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So both of them did experience suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, Jesus did what he always did here. He used the indignance of the other disciples as a teachable moment. First, he tells them in verse 25, the kingdom isn't about flaunting your authority over people and lording over them, holding it over their heads. That's what this world's about. <laughs> Instead, in verses 26 and 27, he says, hey, my followers are going to be operating differently. If you want greatness, serve. If you want to be first, become a slave, be last. That's definitely not what the wisdom of this world would teach us about how we should act. And finally, in verse 28, Jesus states his mission. He says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, even though he deserved it. He came instead to serve. And it cost him dearly. So I want to talk a little bit about what it means to live out our identity as servants. And I see three things that we need to do. First one, follow the example of Jesus. And by the way, that's a good thing to do in anything. Jesus didn't give us the command to serve, right? And then go, well, hey, but I'm the king, so you little people do it all, and that's great. Now. 
Jesus is a servant king. He leads by example. On the night when he was arrested, Jesus did this. I'm going to read from John chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 12 now. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, notice here in verse 3, we start out, John begins this, this account by telling us that Jesus knew the Father given everything, he'd come from God, he was going back to God. What's he telling us? Jesus knew his identity. <laughs> That's what he's telling us. Then, how Jesus was dressed. He laid aside his outer garment. It was exactly what a slave in that day would have worn. And slaves were looked down on in their culture. So he truly took the lowest place. Now, washing feet. Why? Because remember, they lived in a culture where they ate on low tables, and you didn't have cars. You're walking around with sandals on dusty roads. They weren't paved. So, you know, feet, food, not a good combination. Washing feet was something that a disciple might do for their master but not the other way around. It was unthinkable what he did. But Jesus set the example by doing what he told the disciples to do in Matthew chapter 20, to be great, be a servant. Or in Mark 9, to be first, be last. Once again, Jesus sets for us yet another example of the upside-down nature of his kingdom, a kingdom where servants take the highest place. A second thing I think this passage shows us about what we need to do. We need to touch others with God's love. Further down in in John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now notice, he doesn't say, People will know you're my disciples because you know the scriptures inside out, backwards. He doesn't say, people will know you're my disciples because you go around confronting people that don't believe in me. He didn't even say that people would know his followers by their good deeds. He said their followers will be known by their love. Now, we can show this love tangibly by meeting people's needs. And I want to point out to start, it doesn't just apply to people that we like. Listen to this, Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Paul says here, you want to get even with your enemy? Serve him. Pastor Brian last week shared with us Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul's telling us that if you're going to serve, if you're going to share what you have, it can be a sacrifice. 
And serving is often going to cost us something. James chapter 2 and verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is saying, don't just say something, do something. He's telling us we should serve others by meeting physical needs. But now, here's the thing. If we're going to do that, we've got to be sure that our service is flowing out of a heart to show Jesus is great, not to make ourselves look great. We've got to do it in a way that deflects the credit, or the Bible would use the word glory, back to God in Jesus Christ. You see, it's all about the heart. As children of the King, true service is all about the heart. When it's done for the right reasons, God's going to use your service to reach people with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Right? God wants everyone to come to know Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 says that. God's not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But we can't reach out to the world on our own. And I've been captivated with this verse for months. The worship arts community is getting tired of hearing it, I'm sure. John chapter 15 and verse 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you think you can do it alone, you can't. But if you think you can't do it with Jesus... You can't. Philippians 4.13, I bet a lot of you know it by memory. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Third thing I think we need to do to live out our identity as servants, bless God's heart. Do that which God wants us to do. Servanthood is what he desires. Jesus himself told us so. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the king prepared for, uh, kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of my brothers, or brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Jesus is telling us here that his heart for service is so great that as we serve others, it's really serving him. Serving others is doing his work, acting as his hands and feet. It expresses his heart of love for all people. How do I know this? Mark 9, verse 41. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The source of our servanthood will reward us for 
our servanthood. We have a mission team that's about to go and put these words into action. The Johnny and Friends Ministry serves families that have a member with a disability. And they have these camps where they come and they, they spend a week and they get ministered to with Christ-like encouragement. And a team of New Lifers is headed to camp to serve. This is the kind of ministry, I think, that Jesus meant by serving the least of these. Those that most people look past or forget. And so I'm going to ask the team that's going to come down right now, come down and stand right here up front. Come on, you guys. Here they are. Here they come. And we're going to pray for them. We're going to send them off, having prayed over them. If you're someone that knows these folks, maybe you're in a small group with them or you know them, or maybe you just like to pray for people, or maybe you're passionate about reaching outside these walls and doing this ministry, Come on down, let's lay hands on them and let's commission them and send them out with our blessings too. If you're not going to pray for them specifically, that's fine. I'm going to ask you to do this. Pray, spend this time and pray that God will use all of us as new lifers to take his love and show his love out to the world. So you guys go ahead and pray and uh, I'll close this when things wind down. God, as much as serving blesses your heart, the holy hum of prayer that I'm just hearing right now, God, that blesses your heart too. And I pray that you walk with this team as they go. I pray that you would just use them, God, that you would make their ministry powerful, that the families that they serve would just feel the smile of Jesus on them. God, that these, these folks, the least of these, would feel the smile of Jesus Christ on them. They would feel loved, not forgotten. God, I pray that you just help them with all the logistics, God, you know, that they don't forget something and then you get there and you've forgotten it and all those things, their travel goes okay and everything. Not so it's just easy, God, but because... It'll clear the way for you to move in the ways you want to move without distraction. And so, God, I pray that these folks that are going would experience your smile on them for doing your work, being your hands and feet, God, as they go. Bless them. Show them things about your love and the kingdom they'd never see if they stayed here. 
God, we believe you're about to do some powerful ministry. We can't wait to hear the stories that are going to come out of it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as these folks are headed back to their seat, and we launch into the other identity we're going to talk about today, we found this instructional video that we think might help you. So take a look at the screens. Here at Triple C, carving clearer Christianity, we know that the walk of faith can be filled with a bucket full of challenges. But hey, it's not like it's rocket science. Hello, I'm Dr. Marvin Orville Blavin with Triple C Laboratories, and my particular function is to reveal how simple a first step can be into the Christian community. Take, for instance, worship. Many can become confused by the moving lights, the smoke, and the pulsating of those madcap drums. Worship is more than just noticing typos on the sing-along screen. Worship doesn't require a talent in singing or knowing where to put your hands. Because worship is simply your heart surrendering to Jesus. Sure, many get caught up in appearances trying to look like this or sound like that as if they're the bee's knees. <laughs> but none of that is really the point. <laughs> True worship actually requires that you let go of what people think about you in order to let God know what you think of Him. It's a little bit of irony. Surrender and freedom all happening at the exact same time. It's... Surfrierindemder, and it's a more complicated word for worship. So we'll just stick with worship. This is why some close their eyes, some raise their hands, and some wish that coffee from the church kiosk had a more secure lid. <laughs> there is no right way to worship. There is only you determining in your heart that you will let go of what is holding you back and instead surrender fully in this moment to Jesus Christ. That is worship, the state of your heart. It is a choice between you and the Almighty God, even if you've never sang these songs before, and even if you don't know what to do. Worship can be a life-changing experience with your Creator. It can be Sir Freerandomder. I'm Dr. Marvin Orville Blevin, and worship is not rocket science. <laughs> well, it's all crystal clear now, isn't it? As we consider our identity as worshipers, I want to look at a passage in Genesis chapter 22. Now, you always like it when it's in Genesis because if you have your Bible, it's easy to find. It's the first book. And it's on your study guide if you want to do that. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son 
your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now you may remember that Abraham was the father of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And Isaac was his son of promise. Back in Genesis 13, God told Abraham that he would make his offspring as plentiful as the dust of the earth. There's one problem with that. Abraham didn't have any offspring. In fact, he didn't have Isaac until he was in his 90s. Now, you might ask, why this passage to talk about worship? Well, there's a principle in studying Scripture. It's called the law of first mention. It says this, Any place there's a subject that's mentioned for the first time in Scripture, pay special attention to it. Genesis 22, verse 5, is the first mention of worship in the Bible. Where Abraham says, The boy and I will go and we will worship. I think this passage gives us a lot of insights about worship. We're gonna, I want to share with you this morning six things that I saw looking at this passage. First of all, worship is God's idea. If we want to think it's our idea, it's not. God directed all the specifics. Look in verse 2. He selected when. He chose to call Abraham when he, when he wanted to. He defined what. Take your son and sacrifice him. He determined where. He told him, go to the land of Moriah on a mountain I'm going to tell you about. He specified how. He said he was to offer him as a burnt offering. Now notice, God didn't tell Abraham everything right at the beginning. See, faith is required. God knows very well that if he told us all the stuff at the beginning, we couldn't handle it. God often tells us what we need to know just in time. A friend of mine used to say this, God is rarely early, but he's never late. Notice this, though. God didn't answer the big question. 
Why? We'll come back to that. Second thing I want you to see, Abraham heard God and obeyed. Abraham heard God's voice. God starts at the beginning. He says, hey, Abraham, and God says, here I am, or Abraham says, here I am. He heard God's voice. And his response was to obey despite the depth of the sacrifice that God was asking for. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. God comes to you and says, I want you to give up the thing that you care about the most. What would you do? Would you check with some other people and say, well, I'm not sure if this makes sense. What do you think? This famous Christianese, well, I think I need to pray about that for a while. <laughs> Would you make a bargain with God? God, if you don't make me do this, I'll, I'll serve you in this way or I'll give you this. Or maybe just refuse to do it. Sorry, God, that's too much. Forget it. Abraham did it God's way exactly as directed. Verse 3 tells us that. And he did it immediately. Which leads us to a third thing I want you to see. Abraham prepared for worship. It took a lot of preparation to worship the way God directed in verses 3 and 4. It says Abraham got up early. He got his transportation ready. He saddled up his donkey. Took two servants with him. He prepared wood, and think about it, that's hard work. It's not like Abraham had a chainsaw he could use. He went to the place God directed, and that too. That's a long journey and a difficult time. You couldn't just hop in the car and say, yeah, if you get hungry, we'll stop at McDonald's, you know? No, he had to go on this long journey. It says he only saw it afar off on the third day. So I want to ask you this morning, do you prepare for worship? Do you walk in here on Sunday morning and go, well, I'm here? Now, I know some of you immediately are like, well, you don't understand, you know, just to get the kids out the door and all that, you know, and I, I totally get that. Um, I'm not asking you to go get a seminary degree or something. I mean this. Can you take 20 seconds on your way here, maybe before you leave, and do this? Say, God coming to meet with you today. I want to hear from you. Help me to connect with you as we sing the truth in these songs. Help me to acknowledge that truth in my mind. Help me to hear your voice as, as the word is opened. I'm telling you, you do it, you'll have a totally different experience when you're here. Just take those few seconds and prepare. Fourth thing, Abraham got alone with God. Now, there's something special, I think, about worshiping God together with others who share our faith. And some of my best worship experiences, the most memorable I've had, have been in very large group gatherings. Maybe some of you would say the same thing. I think part of it is that we misunderstand our role in corporate worship. Our celebrity-based culture influences our thinking about worship in ways that aren't biblical. First of all, the musicians that are here on the weekends, they're not the performers. You are the performers. You're not the audience. God is the audience. 
The worship team, they're just prompters. There's a lot of us. They're helping us stay together so we're not going off in a hundred different directions. That's all. Worship is a personal response to God, even in a corporate setting. Even when we're here together, it's personal. I can't worship for you. You can't worship for me. Worship's the response of your heart to God. John 4.23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, I know, that's one of those ones when you read that passage, you go, okay, spirit and truth, got it. And And we don't know, what does that mean? Okay, here's what it is. We worship in spirit. What does that mean? It means it's a response from inside of us. It's not about all the outside stuff. True worship comes from inside of us. And the part about worshiping in truth, that's when we acknowledge with our intellect the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. That causes a response in our spirit of worship. Does that make sense? That's what that's saying. The passage tells us in verse 5, Abraham left the servants behind. In fact, verse 6 tells us he left behind everything but what he needed to worship. He took the knife, he took the fire, he took the wood, he took Isaac. We really want to worship God. We've got to put aside the clutter of our lives. Slow down for a minute. Quiet our hearts. Focus our minds on him. We've got to make space to hear from God and connect deeply with him. You know, it, it's, it's tough to hear from God and tune our hearts when our minds are filled with the, the clutter and the noise of our modern lives. Especially in our culture, you've got to work at making space for God in your life. The fifth thing I want you to see, and this is maybe the key one, true worship costs something. Now, do you ever think about the Old Testament worship practices? They all involve sacrifice. And a lot of that had to do with the blood and all that. But I still think there's a truth that remains even today. Real worship involves sacrifice. God asked Abraham to lay down the thing he loved the most, his only son, the son of promise. Now, Abraham sacrificed himself to God in several ways. First, he sacrificed his will to God. He obeyed, even though he probably didn't want to. And think about it. It was a long journey, right? He could have got halfway and went, you know what? Forget this. I'm going home. But he didn't. He sacrificed his emotions to God. Can you put it yourself in his shoes? Imagine what he must have been feeling from when God talked to him all the way through this process. He sacrificed his intellect to God. Now you say, how do, how do I know that? Hebrews 11, verse 17 tells us. There it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He trusted God to the point that he expected God would just raise Isaac back from the dead. Now that's faith. Now, Let's go back to that why question. 
why did God ask this? This account pictures Jesus. We've talked about this from time to time. Luke 24, Jesus is walking along the road after his resurrection with two of the disciples, and he's explaining to them how all of Scripture is about him. Now think about when this was. All of Scripture was the Old Testament. (laughs) Jesus said, all of Scripture is about me, and he ought to know. So think about this. God loved Abraham. Abraham was so special to God, the father of his chosen people, a picture of God the Father, that he wanted him to get a taste of what the Father would experience in sending Jesus to be the Messiah. And Abraham believed for a resurrection. And there would be one, but it wouldn't come until centuries later when Jesus Christ overcame death and the grave. I want you to see also David modeled this attitude of paying the price for worship. God had told him to build an altar on land owned by a man named Ornan. And the account is in 1 Chronicles 21, starting in verse 22, it says this. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it. Let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for for the wood, and wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. Ornan was a generous man. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord that which is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You know, a few years ago, I went on a mission trip to India, and um, we went to an area of India. We did a conference there that was not Christian-friendly, even though it's against the law to do that. And in the closing session of that conference, they had a time of worship, and the folks from the youngest, the teenagers, all the way up to the 60-year-old man who's playing the harmonium, and instrument they have there, Worshipped God with abandon. Now, I don't understand the language, but I knew what I was feeling and watching as they played and sang and danced before the Lord. He encouraged my heart. And a host leaned over to me during that time and said, look around this room, some of these people will be martyred. I think their worship has a deep passion because it costs them something. What are you willing to give to worship God? Are you willing to make a weekly worship gathering like this one a priority? More than once a month or something? Being here week in and week out? Seeing what God's doing? Be on time for it? A lot of times we start worship, this room's 80% empty. Stay till the end. God might want to do something. I'll tell you what, I know I don't want to miss out on what God might do. How about serving in a ministry? Now, I know the first thing some people, well, you know, I don't really have anything to give. Scripture tells us every believer in Christ has a gift to give. If you're not serving, then the body isn't functioning right because half of its parts are missing. Get involved. Get in the game. Serve. 
Listen to me. I guarantee you, you'll get more out of it than the people that you're serving. How about going on a mission trip? Now, I know for some of you, I know what you're thinking because I used to think this. I'm too afraid to go. I mean it. I've never been outside the country. I, you know, I'll, I can't do this. Listen to me. I'm just going to tell you. I would never have understood God's heart for the world like I understood because I went on a mission trip. You want to see God's heart for the world? Go. It'll change your life. Did mine. How about are you willing to give financially to God's work? Ooh. Now listen, I know there's some of you that are going, but I'm out of work or I've got a fixed income. God knows all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of us that have the ability to give and we're kind of holding back a little bit. What could God do if we just gave all of us that attend New Life a little bit, just gave a little bit more? Or some of you, if you just started to give something, you'll be a part of what's going on. God will bless you through it. Proverbs 11.24 says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. I'm just saying. How about obeying God and what he says from the word? Now, listen, we've been in this series, but not just this series. Don't you feel it these days? God is speaking to us deeply from his word week in and week out. He's saying things to us. How about if we just say, you know, I don't want to hold back on that, God, and we just say, whatever you say, God, I'm going to do it. Or maybe as we end up our celebrations, we have time of worship and prayer. You see someone in here and you know they've got something going on. Take a risk. Leave your seat and go get with them. Put your arm around them. Pray with them. Encourage them. What would God do if we did that? How would he work in lives? Listen to me, church. I believe the day is coming in America when it won't be easy to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, I would say it's getting harder all the time. The North American church has become soft and complacent. What's going to happen to us when we have to pay a hefty price to worship Christ? I think we're going to find out. True worship is giving God all that we are, not I surrender some. And our God is worth it. The last thing I want you to see from this passage, God responds to true worship. Isaac was spared because Abraham did what God asked, verses 11 and 12 tell us that, and God stopped Abraham before he had to sacrifice his son because God saw that he was willing to do it. You know, this passage tells us from the very beginning, verse 1, that it was a test. And Abraham passed with flying colors. God provided his own sacrifice because of Abraham's response of unabashed worship, verse 13. Nothing was more important to Abraham than God, and he showed it by his actions. And then in turn, 
God showed his love by providing his own sacrifice. Interestingly, just as Abraham said he would in verse 8. When we honor God, he honors us. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Two verses later, come near to God and he will come near to you. Make the first move. You see, new life, it's all about the heart. As children of the king, true worship is all about the heart. Now, did you notice, this passage doesn't talk one time about singing, or instruments, or lighting, or what kinds of songs we sing, or what we're doing with our hands. As the video said, it's really not the point. The point is our hearts fully surrendered to God. So, we've looked at our identity as servants and as worshipers, and we've seen that they're both about our hearts. Now, I want you to consider this verse for a moment that Pastor Brian read to us last week. I know a lot of you probably know this by memory, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is telling us here that as children of the king, we have to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. Doing so will follow the example of Jesus. It will touch others with God's love. It'll bless God's heart. And it's a sacrifice that will cost us something. Now, interestingly, instead of your spiritual worship, the King James translates that phrase this way, your reasonable service. You see, these two identities that we've talked about today, they aren't two different things at all. They're really the same thing. I want you to consider what the Bible tells us in Philippians 2. I think it shows us the intersection point between servant and worshiper, modeled by Jesus himself. Paul, in this passage, he's going along, he's talking about service, and he says this, in your relationships with one another, verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's he telling us? Jesus is our example. Verse 6, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedience that led to the ultimate act of service. But look what follows from that, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ultimate act of service performed by Jesus Christ results in worship. And by Jesus becoming the ultimate servant, God exalted him to the highest place. 
the very principles we've been talking about this morning, put into action. Jesus had the same attitude as David. He wasn't going to give a sacrifice that didn't cost him anything. He gave a sacrifice that cost him everything. Jesus modeled sacrificial service and worship for us. Now, some of you might say, well, it wasn't a sacrifice. He didn't give his life. He was sentenced to death by the authorities of his day. Then I want you to consider these words. John 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus gave his his life willingly, and and he took it up again when he rose victorious over the grave three days later. If that isn't worthy of praise and worship, I don't know what is. I'm privileged to lead the worship arts community here at New Life, and um, every weekend, lots of our, our folks serve in different ways so that you can hear what's going on or see things or so that we have songs that speak deep spiritual truth that you can engage with and other stuff. And hours and hours and hours go into that every week, getting ready. And if, if, if you're blessed by that, we're humbled and honored to serve you. And it's a privilege to serve the king. But often when I leave on weekends, what gets me excited is not even that. It's what's happening in us as the worship arts community as we serve you. How God is changing us. How we're, we're learning lessons of what it means to be servants and worshipers. What it means to to serve in true Christ-like community. Figuring out these lessons as we go along. Some of you remember longtime New Lifer Ron Wilson. And uh, he went home to be with Jesus a month ago, a month ago today. And... When I first began leading the orchestra 13 years ago, Ron was a longtime member of that group then, played the trombone, and he loved to do it. About the beginning of 2011, those of us that knew Ron began to notice changes in him. And we didn't understand what was going on then, but we came to find out later that he had an early onset of Alzheimer's disease. He was only in his mid-50s. And... Um, it became hard for him to even read music or know what song we were doing. About a year ago this time, between celebrations right there in that very spot, Ron came to me and said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And uh, I didn't want him to give up that which he had loved so much. And I encouraged him to stick with it as long as he could wasn't hurting him, as long as he wasn't being a distraction to anybody else. I, I, I didn't want him to give that up. But it was the orchestra who came alongside Ron and, and just served him. Helping him be where he was supposed to be, or like, he's putting his horn away. It's like, only the 9 o'clock, we still have another service to go, Ron, you know. And just trying to kind of shepherd him along. And they loved him. He got confused, even got agitated sometimes, but they just loved him. One man, Dave Draghi, plays the tuba, sat next to Ron, and he had a member of 
his family that had a brain injury. And so he made it his calling to serve Ron by helping him. And so he would play the tuba with one hand, and he would have his hand on Ron's music as we were going along, showing him where we were. And once a month, I got to see the words of Jesus serving the least of these played out right in front of me. The story is told that in hell, there's a great banquet set out, piled high with all kinds of sumptuous food. And as the people are seated there, the problem is that the utensils are attached to their hands and they're four feet long, so they cannot get the food to their mouths. And what could be a nice situation is a frustrating and torturous one. But the story goes on to say that in heaven, the exact same scene plays out. Except there, the people feed each other. Because they're servants and worshipers. Let me ask you this morning. How are you doing with your identity as a servant? How are you doing with your identity as a worshiper? I've felt all week that God just wanted to talk to us about this this weekend. I just believe that there's lots of you in this room that as I've been talking, God's been tugging at your heart. So as your spiritual act of worship today is your reasonable act of service, I'm just asking you to listen to God's voice. And when you hear it, obey his call, just like Abraham did. Steve's going to come back and he's going to sing a song. It's going to remind us what's truly important about when this life is over. But as he sings, I'm going to ask you to ask God, what does he want you to do based on what we've talked about today? Are there changes you need to make in your life? I'm going to ask the prayer partners to come right now. They're going to be up here. Maybe you're going, I'm not sure what God's saying to me. They would love to pray for you. They would be honored to pray for you and help you maybe discern what God is saying. So they'll be up here through the rest of our time in case you need them. Listen to me, folks. 1,000 years from now, your soul's still going to be alive. What's going to be important then? What will you wish you had done now? Make today the day you heard God's voice and made the decision to obey in serving and worshiping Him. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray a prayer of confession over us as we just prepare to hear from God. Maybe as we do this, maybe you want to put your hands out like Pastor Brian asked us last week just to signify, God, I'm here. Here I am like Abraham and I want to hear from you. Let me pray. God, we confess to you this morning. No, God, I confess to you this morning. I have not served you the way you want me to serve you. I've not served others the way you want me to serve others. I've not worshipped you the way you deserve to be worshipped. God, I'm just asking right now in this time, speak to hearts, God, all over this room, an individualized, personalized message about what we need to confess. 
And so, God, whatever that is, may we lay it aside. Hear your voice, God. Give us spirit ears to hear. And do whatever you say. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.